McLean Bible Arlington, it's good to be with you guys uh, this morning. And so go ahead, if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to uh, Mark 9. Uh, Mark 9, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, so we're going to start at verse 38. We're going to work our way down to verse 41. Uh, Mark 9, verse 38, on down to um, verse uh, 41. Uh, if you're brand new, my name is Eric. I'm one of the uh, pastors uh, here, and we're in the middle of a series in the book of Mark, as that bumper just said, entitled uh, Following uh, Jesus. And, and during this series, uh, what we want for you is, on one hand, we want you to understand this book of the Bible more, but we also want you to understand this book in order for you to love and to know and experience the person to whom this book points, namely Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ wants that uh, for you. And he's available to you right now, like even where you sit. Like it doesn't matter um, whether, uh, or, whether or not you've been here for 10 years or whether or not it's your first Sunday here. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you were, could easily find the book of Mark in your Bible or you needed the help of the table of contents to find it, right? It, it doesn't matter um, whether you were full of faith this morning or full of doubt. So whether you're walking tall or, or you messed up just last, last night, God wants you. He loves you. He's available to you this morning. And we pray that you'll experience that as well. And so I'm going to read this text, and then we're going to take a moment to pray together. And so Mark 9, starting at verse 38, let's read together. Well, let me read it. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, do not stop him. For the one who does a mighty work in my name, for, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against me is for, against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup, of cold, a, a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will, be, will by no means lose his reward. And this is the word of God. Right, let's pray together. And Father, we come before you today grateful. We come before you to grateful that when we were in the worst predicament imaginable, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you, God, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, we have been saved. And so, Father, as a people who trust you and believe in you, God, I pray that you will help us to hear your words this morning. Help us to respond to them in the way that we should. Help us to hear and respond in faith and obedience. Father, will you help us to listen, clear any distractions we might have, and help us to hear what you have to say to us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So guys, one of the greatest R&B music groups of all time uh, is uh, The Temptations. I don't know if all of you guys know who The Temptations is. Uh, Gen Z, uh, let me tell you who The Temptations are. The Temptations are uh, those, uh, that group that your grandma used to listen to when she went out on dates with granddad, right? That, that, that was The Temptations, right? And The Temptations were one of the most successful music groups of all time. They released four Billboard number one singles, 14 R&B number one singles, third, um, three Grammy Awards, and they are ranked uh, in Rolling Stones magazine as one of the top 100 musical acts that ever have existed. You see, at the time that the Temptations were in their heyday, they weren't just a group. The Temptations, they really felt like a movement. But when you think about all the accolades that they received, it's crazy to consider the fact that they could have done even more. 
Soon after their arise, pride began to affect the group. Those who sang lead demanded to be recognized over those who sang background. Certain members of the group began to compare themselves to one another. Jealousy began to take root. Factions began to form, and, and people uh, left to form their own groups in order to go solo. And what's interesting is the group, the temptations, actually still exist until this day. It still continues. However, the question still remains, what if? What would have happened if comparison, jealousy, and pride did not infiltrate this group? And this text today is a reminder that jealousy and comparison and pride aren't just a temptation or weren't just a temptation for the temptations. It's also a temptation for the family of God. You see, when I look at the family of God, I often look around at our world, and I'm sure you do the same thing, and I often wonder too, what if? You see, our God is sovereign, and he will build, build his church, and God doesn't need us in order to make that happen. And if we don't build the church, God's going to do that another way. However, I still wonder what if. What if, what incredible things would happen if people, when they peered into churches, including ours, and instead of seeing jealousy and comparison and pride and envy, they saw the beauty of unity. Like, what would happen? And this leads to the question that I believe this text leads us to today. How do followers of Jesus Christ demonstrate unity in the midst of diversity? How do we unite in the midst of our differences? You see, people who claim to follow Jesus Christ have so many differences among them. We have geographical differences and personality differences and even theological differences as well. How do we pursue unity in the midst of our differences? And, and it remains to be seen. Is that even possible? And if so, if that's possible, what exactly does that look like? This all leads us to the passage today. And so the first verse that we hear, or the first uh, sound that we hear in this passage is the voice of John. And, and I love it because this is the first and only time in this book that we actually hear John speak by himself. And it, it's so interesting here, and le but let me give you some context for his remarks. You see, Jesus had just had a sit down with his disciples. You see, his disciples were arguing with each other about who was the greatest. We talked about that last week. And Jesus sits down with his disciples, and he says to them that your greatness is not predicated on how high you ascend above other people. Your greatness is tied up in how willing you are to stoop low in order to serve people. That's what greatness is. And then not only that, um, greatness is seen also in your willingness to receive children. We see this in verse 37. So if you're here last week, remember, when Jesus calls the child in his midst and said you should receive him, he's not talking about the fact that the church should receive literal children. We should. But in that analogy, he's using this child as a metaphor to describe that the church should receive those kinds of people who seem insignificant and forgotten among God's people. We tend to go after the big people. We tend to go after the people of high esteem. But Jesus says, when I get a hold of you, you begin serving the lowly and the forgotten among my people. And, I, and Jesus says this in that text, and Jesus is extremely clear. But here's the thing. John's response in verse 38 illustrates something that we all know. It's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to get something. 
It's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to get something. Look at verse 38 with me. John said to him, namely Jesus, he said, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. See, catch this. This line actually reveals something interesting or something revealing about John uh, at the time. You see, this text reveals that John was a bit of a hothead. He was a bit overzealous. Gen Z uh, would say that John wanted all the smoke. And listen, there are other places in the Gospels that confirm this. Um, there's a passage, you can even look this up, in um, Luke 9, uh, 51 through 56. So Jesus is in Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. He's continuing his ministry. And the Samaritans, they weren't really rocking with Jesus, right? The Samaritans were dismissing Jesus, disrespecting them. And it's so interesting that John and his brother James, in that moment, they're pretty much looking at Jesus like, Jesus, hold on. They're disrespecting you? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, fall back. Here, 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 here. James and John were wrong there. But let me tell you, though, I appreciate the zeal, though. <laughs> I appreciate it. Here's the thing. Pastoral aside, everybody needs people in your life that has your back like that. Right? Everybody needs people in your life that, listen, when your back gets pushed up, pushed up against the wall, you know there's people coming out and they're ready to go. Like, they're ready to die. Right? I appreciate that about, I appreciate that about uh, John and, and even James. But here's the issue. The God of the universe didn't need John's protection. The God of the universe did not need John's protection, but John was zealous. There's other clues in the text as well. There was a time in which John and James get the whole family involved. They pull Jesus to the side and they say, Jesus, when you inherit your kingdom, can, can, me, and, can, can me and James sit on your right and your left? You see, John was extra. He was zealous. And Jesus seemed to know this because in Mark 3, when we we're first introduced to John and James, Jesus gives John and James a nickname. He gives them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Pretty much, commentators say that that, uh, that that nickname was given because Jesus knew that they were quick-tempered, fiery, and zealous. And that's not the wrong with being zealous. But we see here that John's, ze John's zeal wasn't about Jesus and him being in first place. John's zeal was about John being in first place. We see that in the text. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because they were not following us. You see, in that statement, you see a couple of things that, reveals, that reveal where John's zeal lies. First, you see some jealousy in that statement. You see, it's ironic that John is telling this guy to stop exercising demons. See, this text implies that, the, that, that um, the man the disciples came across is actually successful at it. Like he's doing it and he's doing it well. And he's successful at the very thing that the disciples just failed at. Remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They come upon the disciples and the disciples um, were, were, were in the midst of an argument. And the argument was all about the fact that the disciples um, were called to exercise a demon of a man's son and they couldn't do it. And it seems like in that moment, their self-esteem or, 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 or their thoughts about their own abilities took a hit. And they see this man doing what they failed to do. And instead of celebrating that that man is doing a work of God, they tell the man to stop. 
And let me bring this home to our neighborhood this morning. Isn't that just like jealousy? Jealousy will have you wishing other people will stop doing good things because you're not the one doing it. Jealousy will have you hating on other people because they're getting the results that you think that you deserve. Jealousy will have you more concerned about your own glory than other people's good. Jealousy will have you rooting against people doing God's work because it's different than your work. See, jealousy reveals a zeal for good to be done to you above good being done to other people in the world. But not only is jealousy in the midst here for John, uh, let me give you something else that, that, that is animating John's zeal. It's also pride. Look back at the verse. John is reason, John's reasoning for stopping this man is this. He said, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Yo, shouldn't John be worried if this man was following Jesus? Like, shouldn't John have said, hey, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you? John said, us. One commentator put it this way. He said, is it not a little presumptuous at this stage of discipleship for John to think himself and the other disciples worthy of being followed? This is yet another echo of their inflated self-importance. Y'all, this is more proof that John had a greater zeal for his own glory than the glory of Jesus. He had a misdirected zeal, and this zeal causes him to reject a man that was actually doing the work of God. Man, and I look at the person doing the work of God, and the text doesn't tell us who this person is, but I imagine, and it's not a far stretch, that this person could have been uh, the person that Jesus healed from demons four chapters ago in Mark 5. If you don't know that text, I, 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 I'll tell you a bit about it. If you don't know the story, um, Jesus comes across a man that society had already given up on. This man did, was not living in the town that, that, that he was from anymore. He was out there among the dead. He was among the tombs because the town didn't know what to do with this man. He's in a desperate situation. He's possessed by demons. And Jesus goes out to him, reaches him right where he is, and rescues him exercising demons, casting out demons from him. This man is so overjoyed by what Jesus had done that he says, Jesus, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no, 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 you stay where you are. And Jesus says this. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how much he's had mercy on you. And that's what he did. And what if it was him telling everybody what Jesus had done for him and not merely telling about Jesus and his kingdom, but demonstrating that through, through, through allowing other people to experience what he had experienced from Jesus. And the disciples, instead of acknowledging the power of his testimony and rejoicing that he, he's following Jesus too, they tried to stop him out of pride. How sad is that? But I love the text that it said, he, I love the text where it says they tried to stop him. Meaning, just think about it. Think about the pressure that somebody would feel to stop doing their ministry because people who are close and in Jesus' circle told them to stop. But I love this fact because the text seems to tell us that he didn't allow the disciples' insecurity to cause them to stop what God had told him to do. You see, I want to finally bring this home to us this morning. Listen. 
When the body of Christ is filled with people who desire their own glory above Jesus, division is, division is soon to follow. Hear me. In order for God's people to have the kind of community, the kind of, kind of unity that we talked about before, we must resist jealousy and pride. To this point, look at Jesus' response. Verse 39. Verse 39 says this. So John is talking. He says, they're not following us. We tried to stop this man. But Jesus says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, by no means lose, by, by, will, will by no means lose his reward. First, let's pause here. I want us to zero in on the patience of Jesus here. Y'all, I'm encouraged by the truth. The disciples keep failing to get it. And everything they express, uh, and every time they express their, under, their lack of understanding in the presence of Jesus Christ, what does Jesus do? He doesn't dismiss them. He keeps teaching them. He keeps revealing to them his purpose and his plan, even when they fail to get it. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me today. I don't have to act like I have, to have it all together in the presence of Jesus. I could come before him. I could be honest with him with my ignorance and bring even my ignorance before the Lord and I'll be met with not a loud, I told you already, with a patient eagerness to teach me again. This should encourage you this morning. If you keep coming, Jesus will keep teaching. So keep coming to him. But this response here is so helpful to the disciples and to us today because he says, listen, don't stop this man from doing a work in my name. He may not be like you, but that, that doesn't mean that he's not following me. You see, Jesus is telling John that this man may not be a part of your tribe, but he's a part of my family. And what Jesus is saying right now is so important for us to know, especially in the time that we live in today. We live in a time in which when everywhere you look, Christians are dismissing and disregarding other Christians because they don't agree with them on every single fine point of theology. Yo, you log into Twitter, you log into YouTube, and you see people who have amassed huge followings and created even jobs for themselves, and all they do is tear down other Christians. Now, Christian tribalism is an ugly thing. Tribalism itself is an ugly thing. We see that in D.C. We see political tribalism. But Christian tribalism is an ugly thing. And here, Jesus is trying to help them understand something that we all need to know, that there may be people who are not a part of your tribe, but they're a part of his family. So the question remains, how do we have unity? How do we have unity among people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and we have some real differences with? How do we disagree and still remain united? And what does that look like? I think this text gives us some principles to uh, consider. Here's what I want to give you. First one. For us to have this kind of unity, even in the midst of differences, we need to know which Christian beliefs are essential and which are important. Which are essential and which are important? Y'all don't know about you, but we all got those people in our lives that it feels like every single hill that they have is one to die on. 
Man, there's a comedian named Emo Phillips, and uh, they said that this joke that he gives was one of the most popular jokes in the 21st century. Now, you may have heard this joke before. So it's a popular joke about religion. He said this. He says, once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, don't do it. And he said, nobody loves me. And I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He says, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative, Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. <laughs> you see, that, text, what, what, that joke, what, what, what gives bite to that joke is this. It's Christians who believe that every single theological hill is one to die on. And that's simply not the case. Every difference that we have, follower of Jesus Christ, with other believers in Christ, is not a hill to die on. I know so many people who shoot their Christianity that way. That every doctrine is a hill to die on. And if you don't agree with them, they reject your faith in Jesus. And here's the thing. When we live like that, we show that we have some of the same kind of zeal that John had in him. We're more concerned with people following us than we are people following Jesus. Now here's the thing. The reason why I use that term and that point, if you could put that point back on the screen, the reason why I use the term important rather than non-essential is this. Is for some of us, when we hear non-essential, we can begin to think unnecessary or unimportant. But here today, every single word in the scripture is God-breathed. It came from God. And that means that every single word is important. You might not get it, you might not understand it, but it is important, and yet there are some essential beliefs that our faith rests on. Let me prove it to you. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, there were times in which he said that, hey, these are disputable matters. Y'all can, can agree to disagree. Like in Romans 15, 5, you can even look that up. He says, man, y'all disagreeing about this stuff? Hey, listen, like, agree to disagree on that. But then you see in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he talks about a matter that is of first importance. He says, no, 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 we got to agree on this. This is essential. And Paul himself di differentiates between important beliefs and essential beliefs. So your question may be, okay, cool. There is a, 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 a corpus of beliefs that Christians need to agree on. What are these essential beliefs? And we would say this. It's the gospel message. It's the gospel message. And I want to pause because you, you may be here, you may be here, you may have never heard the gospel message before. And I want to take a moment to declare what Christians believe in order to be Christians. And the gospel is this. The gospel is the fact that we needed saving and Jesus was eager to save. This is the gospel. So what happened was every single one of us has been created by God. And instead of following him and, and his way, we rejected his way and we went our own. The Bible calls that sin, and in our sin, the presence of God elicits his wrath. 
Our sin elicits the wrath of God, and yet God in his mercy and grace, he did not leave us in the crosshairs of his wrath. He sent his son, Jesus, in order to take the wrath that we deserve. Jesus lived a perfect life in full obedience to his father. He died a death on the cross in our place for our sin. And yet Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again, proving that he's God, that his sacrifice was acceptable, and that he has power over sin, Satan, death, and the grave. Meaning that for anyone who would simply come to Jesus and confess him as Lord, believe in him and his finished work on the cross, that that was for them, you can be saved and you can be forgiven of, what, of, of anything you've ever done. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've done. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. This is the gospel. And we would say essential beliefs that all Christians should believe in order to be Christians is that message and any theological belief that upholds that, mes that message. This is what it means. These are what essential beliefs are. This is the message of first importance. And this message since day one has been uniting people across different tribes. With this message, God has been saving people from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south, from the left and the right. Jews and Gentiles, everyone in between has been saved by this message. So in order for us to see the diversity of God's family, we have to know the difference between essential beliefs and important beliefs. Here's my second point I want to give you. We have to be a people, in order to have unity, we, have to have we need to be people who hold strong convictions while extending a gracious spirit. And let me tell you why I'm saying that. Because at this point, I want to guard against going overboard in the other direction. Eric, what are you talking about? For many of us, we've seen too many people arguing over, over just minute, like, like small theological beliefs that we begin to think that the issue is the fact that those people hold strong convictions. So we respond to that and we say, okay, cool. Like, because I always see people arguing over theology, I'm just not going to hold strong convictions about anything. But hear me today, y'all. It is okay to hold strong convictions about things that aren't essential. God has given us his word in order for us to know who he is and what he wants. And here's the thing. The longer that you read it, the longer that you attempt to understand it, you'll begin to form an opinion about it. And it's not only okay, that's actually necessary. Let me explain. 1 Corinthians 3.2, Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready. And even now you are not yet ready. You know what Paul is saying in this verse? He's saying there's an expectation that you're going to grow, that there's an expectation that you're going to learn more about what it means to follow uh, Jesus Christ and your understanding of the Bible. And when you do this, you're actually going to form convictions. You see, you see, but hear me today. There are some of the convictions that you might have in your reading of God's word that might make it extremely hard for you to be a part of a particular church. And that's fine. You may have a strong conviction about infant baptism. And a particular church you might be in might not practice that. You might have a strong conviction about what the Lord's Supper is. And a particular church might not share your view on that. And that's not a bad thing. But what, what this does mean is this. 
there is a humility and love that you still should have um, between other churches that share your Jesus, but they might not share your convictions about everything. Here's a question for you. How do you talk about fellow Christians in other churches? How do you talk about them? How do you think about them? That, that, that church down the street that you think is a little bit too expressive. I mean, the other church, you feel like, man, everybody in here just like, they're like the frozen children. They just stand up with their hands crossed and they just come in and come out. How do you talk about them? Y'all, we need to make room in our hearts for those who have faith in Jesus but find their home in other churches and denominations. This is why as a church, we often pray for other churches, churches that aren't necessarily a part of our theological tribe. Like we pray for churches like Arlington Baptist, Restoration Anglican, Capitol Hill Baptist, National Community Church, Passion City Church, and others. We want to take every opportunity to demonstrate that churches aren't like gangs, y'all. Which of the think, y'all, I rep McLean Bible Church, man. They on their other side. No, the churches ain't gangs, y'all. <laughs> we can root for one another, even though we got some important differences. We want to illustrate that we're all on the same team. And let me give you one thing that I want to say, uh, one more thing about this that I want to say before I move on to the next point. Guys, form convictions, but hear me today. Base your convictions on God's word. On God's word. You may say, Eric, that's a no-duh, but let me explain to you. Don't base your convictions simply on what resonates with you. Y'all know so many people, you'd be surprised by how many people form their biblical convictions off of a podcast they listen to or a TikTok video that they watched one time or whoever their favorite pastor is in the moment. Don't form your convictions based off of what simply resonates with you. Because here's the thing. Reson what resonates with you isn't a great litmus test for convictions because sometimes things resonate um, with you because it resonates not with the spirit in you but with your flesh. So you got to make sure that it aligns with the word of God. Aside, man, I I've seen so many people take wild shifts in their theology over the years. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes our positions on issues change through careful study. But for some, I can see how their shifts have directly aligned with whatever podcast preacher they're listening to in the moment. I'm not saying that's always a bad thing, but I'm going to encourage you to be like a Berean, to go back to God's word and process your shifting beliefs with people who know you well, with your flesh and blood local church pastor that knows you and loves you. And this is applicable because uh, most of you guys probably aren't going to be here forever. For, for whatever reason, you're going to leave here. For whatever reason, a job's going to move you, circumstances are going to move you, and you're going to be looking for another church sometime in the future. Here's a piece of advice um, for you. Uh, all right, let me give you a caution here. Without forming your convictions on the basis of God's word, you have absolutely nothing to base your decision on. So y'all know what you believe. Don't entrust your soul to a local church and base all of that based off of vibes and feels. Like, don't, don't do that. Study God's word and yet hold your convictions with a gracious spirit. Ben, you can go ahead and come back up now. Remember, y'all, there are going to be people who might not share your tribe, but they share your Savior. So act accordingly. But here's my last point I want to give you. 
So I told you guys that we should, um, that we should know which Christian beliefs are essential and which are important. We should hold strong convictions while extending the gracious spirit. Third, we also need to bear with one another in love. We need to bear with one another in love. Y'all, here's the thing. It's not just going to be people who aren't a part of your tribe that you might disagree with. They're going to be people within the body of Christ that you disagree with. Man, I ain't going to call nobody out. There's plenty of y'all that I disagree with y'all about, right? But the scripture tells us to humbly bear with one another in love. Hear me today. We tend to think that our differences are indicator lights to get away from people. That that person disagrees with me, therefore I need to remove myself from your presence. But what if it was the opposite? What if our differences weren't indicator lives to remove ourselves from people's lives? What if our differences were indicator lives that we should lean into other people? To humble ourselves. It's often that God uses people who are very different than you as tools to shape you and to make you a bit more humble. Y'all, we need this. And this leads us to the very last point. Jesus says this. Verse 41, for surely I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ, by no means will lose his reward. I love what Jesus says here. John and his disciples are so focused on their own glory, and they see how big um, this man, uh, this big thing that this man is doing. He's out here doing this big thing. He's exercising a demon. And he's doing something that feels bigger than what the disciples are doing. And they can't stand it. But I love verse 41 because Jesus says here, hey, listen, you need to change your perspective. Big things to you aren't big things to me. You're focused on this man exercising a demon, but I'm telling you, here's the thing, that I see and I reward even the person who gives a cup of cold water. Y'all, here's the thing. The reason why we can resist comparison and jealousy and pride is this. In God's kingdom, God sees the so-called big things and the little things, and he rewards them all. Your service to God is not small. What if instead of comparing ourselves with each other, we together focused on Christ? What if we didn't judge people by their proximity to us, but we love people because of their proximity to Jesus? You know what will happen? We display the beautiful witness of unity. Man, if we were a music group, we wouldn't be divided by who's important. We wouldn't be arguing about who's singing lead and who, who's singing backup or anything like that. We can look at each other and we can receive one another just because we may sing different notes, but we're all singing the same word, namely Jesus. Y'all, we got a ways to go in order to understand this, but there's hope because John had a ways to go. And what I love about John is that, man, early in his ministry, his nickname was, Sons of, was a son of thunder. But later, as he grew in Christ, that nickname didn't fit him too much anymore. He became, he became known soon after that to take on another nickname, namely the apostle of love. I love it because of the patience of Jesus, John went from zealously loving his own glory and loving himself to zealously loving Jesus above all. And if that can happen to John, that can happen to you. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we love you. God, we thank you so much for the cross. I thank you so much for the unity that you give in that. Father, will you help us? 
God, would you unite your church, Father? May we be a people that are generous and hospitable to people who, who, who share belief in you and trust in you, but may not share our, all of our theological convictions. Help us to be a people who aren't scared to form convictions. Help us to love your word and be shaped by it. And Father, will you help us to kill comparison and jealousy and envy and pride? And will we give our lives to you? And will you shape us to be more into the image of your son? We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.